good to have our group back here for learning some Talmud together before we uh, dive in. Uh, just want to relocate us with where we are. We are back in the Talmud, the longest written work in the ancient world, written from about the year zero or so through the year uh, seven or eight hundred when it finally is ultimately redacted. So, the Talmud, as I've taught before, is comprised of two things. It's uh, it's law, it's legal material, it's halacha, which is that word for Jewish law, and stories, legends, mystical pieces, uh, the wisdom literature of our ancient uh, Rabbanim and sages of antiquity. So today we're going to look at a piece that brings up the rabbinic, I'll say, uh, challenge that comes with the fact that the Talmud is legal and it is stories and myths and narrative in that way. We're going to be looking at a piece today that dwells in that complication. Here, we've got more of these two. Do you, do you all need a couple more? So, today we're going to look at Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. Rabbi Elazar ben Arach, we have three stories here of his. Um, I want us to get started in our usual method of chevruta, of turning to the person next to you and taking a first pass at it um, with the understanding, with the assumption that it's going to be weird, it's going to be tricky, it's going to be challenging, and that's okay. This is all part of what this text is about. And then we're going to come back together and unpack this a little bit. So if you want to turn to the person next to you um, and read this aloud together. Uh, again, because we are emulating a traditional Beit Midrash, a rabbinic study hall, uh, feel free to be loud. Dive into it. So ready, get set, go. Just the first text up through that bar in the middle of the page, up to that first line. All right, so it sounds like people have gotten a chance to unpack this story a little bit. I'm going to uh, read through it. I appreciate a couple of you who caught um, little typos of mine in putting together these source sheets of my own translation, so thank you for your work in helping to refine Torah as always. So I'm just going to read through this, um, sort of take it sentence by sentence, and when folks have questions or something they want to jump in with, I invite you to uh, uh, let me know, raise a hand, jump in, what have you. So, Rabban Yohanan ben Zakkai received the tradition from Hillel and Shammai. He used to say, if you've learned much law, yeah, Hillel and Shammai were two of the early, early rabbinic houses. They were two of the earliest rabbis uh, that we have, so even, um, so at the very, very beginning of Talmud, and they argued with each other. Generally speaking, Hillel, the tradition goes with what Hillel suggests and wants and recommends. Um, but they are sort of the classic model of these two dueling schools. Yeah? And we are to, Shell and I talked about this, are we to assume that the tradition is our tradition? Yes. Just tradition, I could have even capitalized it there. You could say the tradition, this whole enterprise. Um, the idea here being that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was sort of in on the ground floor of all of this. This is what we're meant to understand from that. Um, yes? Well, what you said then, he was a synthesizer if he received the tradition from both houses. That's a great comment. That's a very interesting uh, piece to uplift. I hadn't thought about that before. Um, I think this piece often gets read as uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai was part of the project. He's part of transmitting this tradition. He's part of uh, this whole oral set of arguments that were unfolding and uh, 
taking place between all of these sages for these centuries, that he was really in the midst of it, and he was in on the ground floor. But I like that uh, interpretation that maybe if he was incorporating from both of them, he was a synthesizer of sorts. That's a great uh, direction. Yeah, Bert. This is chapter two. Of Perkea Vote. Right. Yes. Chapter one, which I, to me kind of puts this in context, mm-hmm. traces down the lineage that the tradition, supposedly, the, que- the question mm-hmm. that the rabbis faced was, what is the authority of this? Yes. And they posited that it came from Sinai. And so Perkea Vote, the chapter before this, actually begins that with all of the rabbis and it all being passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. So, so this is within that context. Yes. So it's not just, it, it, it's not just one person saying tradition. Right. It's part of this whole long line which legitimizes, I guess, the veracity of it. The enterprise. Thank you, Bert. So it came from, from Sinai. Sinai and was then came from God directly right. and not their opinion. This is what Bert is giving is the way in which the rabbis derive their authority to make laws about Judaism and the way in which, uh, yeah, the, the place from which this whole enterprise derives its authority. Perkei Avot is often translated as ethics of the fathers or chapters of the fathers or some such. It is piece of uh, Mishnah, which to return to what is Talmud, Talmud is two written works. The first one is the Mishnah, which was written and sealed by the year 220, and the second one is the Gemara. The Gemara uh, continues in, Arab, in Aramaic. It's a uh, series of arguments unpacking what Mishnah meant. And it's a little bit vague as to when the Gemara was actually closed or redacted. Um, but a lot of scholarship thinks somewhere 6, 7, 800 CE was when this whole thing gets closed. And so those two works together, the Mishnah and the Gemara, are what make up the Talmud. So... Perkei Avot here is a piece of the Mishnah, so it's an early piece, and Bert is absolutely correct. In chapter 1, you get all of this piece about uh, delineating the generations that come down. So they're laying the groundwork by which they, from which they derive legitimacy in their legislative process. So, back to sentence number 2. <laughs> you see the tradition from Hillel and Shammai. He used to say, if you have learned much law, don't take credit for yourself, for it is why you were created. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had five disciples. Yes. Sorry. No, no worries. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That was confusing. This piece about if you have learned much law. Absolutely. So I would tack that onto this whole legitimation, legitimizing process. Um, that it's all about don't take credit for yourself. That you're really part of this project. You're part of this bigger enterprise. Uh, again, thinking about the context in which this happens. They're laying the groundwork, the foundation for what will be Judaism as we have it, and we know it, and we understand it. This is the beginning of rabbis as a phenomena, as something within Judaism. So this is a lot about their... Here we see him essentially putting down one of the rules of the debate, or the rules of the process, perhaps. Uh, that if you've learned a whole lot of law, so halacha, so about, you know, in the legal stuff here... Uh, don't take credit for yourself. It's why you're here. You're part of a bigger purpose with that. You're exactly. Well, I get that, but the last phrase for it is why you were created. Yeah. That's the part that to me is odd. Mm-hmm. I find that odd. I, I mean, it, it's almost like going in reverse time and saying, well, you as a Jew were created so that you could fulfill... Judaism. It's a cyclical, temporal mess. Um, I want to return to 
one of the sort of classic rabbinic ideas that they sit with, this idea of Ein Mukdam Umelchar B'Torah. There is no such thing as early or late in the Torah. The rabbis latch onto that particular phrase from Torah, and it says a lot about their worldview. They don't view time in the way that we do. Theirs is not a temporal project. They sort of view themselves and their enterprises somehow existing beyond time. If you look at the Talmud, you'll see rabbis arguing with other rabbis who could not have possibly lived at the same time. And yet there it is. They sort of view their enterprises all being present um, with no beginning or no end. That it's sort of a cyclical, ongoing project in that way. So... Um, so in that piece about what is, you know, how is it then justifying it retroactively, well, I just want to remind us all that their conception of time is very different than, than something that we would hold. Yeah. Uh, I also had the thought that a lot of times, especially in you know, older cultures, there was a concept mm-hmm. of, you know, whatever you, were, you did with your life, you were born to do that. There you is know, that too. If a, a musician was born to be a musician, a, a scholar was born to be a scholar, so these, pe- these rabbis were created to fulfill the role of the having the law passed on to them and, and arguing the law, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter that they, I mean, there, there was a, that they ended up becoming rabbis because they would have been rabbis no matter what. That's what they were born to be. It, uh, it says a lot about their perspective and their mindset in that way. It speaks volumes to their imagination in that way. Yeah. I think the thing about time mm-hmm. is very, very interesting because mm-hmm. in our culture... If a piece of research or something is, you know, more than 25 years old, you tend to disregard it. Mm-hmm. It's not current. It's not the latest. But this is different. This credits wisdom from any time. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I think it's a remarkable, it stands in remarkable contrast to uh, a lot of the ways in which we think about time. We looked last time, we talked about Rabbi Akiva and messianism, and this idea of an end times and a messiah and whatnot. Um, much of the rabbinic project uh, stands is almost antithetical to that conception of time as having an end point like that, of us arriving at some kind of end point. They see this as an ongoing, cyclical, flowing thing. Bert, did you have yeah, a... I wanted to comment on... Yeah. It, for it is why you were created. Mm-hmm. Because it, I think it gets to a very, very critical Jewish idea... Mm-hmm. And that is that we as individuals and as a people are not here by accident. Thank you. That, that, that we are not random, just a random collection, and that whatever you want to call it. That, that there is a purpose in life. Because, other, I mean, mm-hmm. I remember back in the 60s. You don't remember back then. I, I, I'm afraid I don't. <laughs> what is, no, no, no. You know, there's a big thing. What, what is life all about? Why am I here? What's you know what what's the purpose of it all? I think people are still asking themselves that. Well, whether one accepts this particular formulation, to me, it is part of, as you say, the product of Judaism. Whether it be this or via Hafter or. Love your neighbor as yourself, or we're here to love other. Whatever it is, that Judaism and the Jewish tradition is a way where we find meaning in life. Which the Jewish idea—it's not something you just slap onto life, but it actually comes as, as the foundation of why am why am I here? 
Thank you. Beautiful, beautifully any spoken. Reason, if there's any reason. Beautifully spoken. But Judaism assumes there's a reason. It does. Um, in that way, that little line um, actually says a lot about the perspective of the rabbis, where it is that they come from, what it is that they hold uh, in terms of their understanding of what's the fabric of their lives in the universe as they understand it. It says a lot there, actually. Yeah. Was the... Was, at that point in history, was there kind of the concept of determinism for, like, religious determinism where, you know, everything, because of God's omnipotence and, and um, you know, everything has to occur because there is no other way for it to occur? So that... Because I know that was a, even in Judaism, that was heavily present by the 900s to and on, but I don't know if that was, because that was sort of a Greek... So, without getting too deeply into it, I will say that you get very interesting glimmers of that thinking, of that thought, uh, in the context of um, the destruction of the Second Temple and the kind of apocalyptic literature that all these different religious groups were producing that time. The Essenes, who were a Jewish sort of, they were a, uh, I guess, pre-Jewish almost back at this time when you had the Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and Sicarii, all these different Jewish groups, early Christians is another one, I'm talking about about the year zero or so. Um, they had all of these epic works about the sons of light and the sons of darkness. Um, again, this it, it's this quasi-messianic, uh, apocalyptic kind of thing, but, uh, and the Christians had Book of Revelations. There were a lot of different religious responses to the kind of destruction and upheaval going on, and a lot of um, the theological responses do go in that kind of direction. It's a little different, though, than what comes up in the 900s or so. I don't want to go too deeply into all of that right now, but yes, in a word. Okay. <laughs> um, moving us along. Uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had five disciples. Rabbi Eliezer ben Hirkonos, Rabbi Joshua ben Hananiah, Rabbi Yossi the Kohen, Rabbi Shimon ben Nathaniel, and Rabbi Eleazar ben Arach. He used to recount their praise. Rabbi Eliezer is a cemented cistern that doesn't lose a drop. <laughs> Rabbi Joshua ben Hanania, happy as his mother. Rabbi Yossi is a pious man. Rabbi Shimon is a fear of sin. And Rabbi Eleazar ben Arach is a, thank you, <laughs> spring flowing with ever-flowing strength. That formulation, this ever-flowing strength there, was a challenging thing for me to translate from the Hebrew. The Hebrew, for those who speak it, is Ma'ayan Mitgaber. Ma'ayan is a spring. It's also a common Israeli name. Mitgaber comes from Gever, Gibor, this word for strength, heroism. Um, that particular grammatical construct of it, Mitgaber, is the reflexive. So it's something that continually strengthens itself, is what the Hebrew implication of it is. It's a very interesting formulation that they have there. Questions? Yeah. It's just a comment. Yeah. So when he was recounting the praises of the rabbis, it seems like he talked about the rabbis' characters, mm -hmm. except for Rabbi Joshua ben Hanania. <laughs> He was a mother's boy? He was a mother's boy. I'm just making it interesting. You're not wrong. I'm not wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I think it sort of sidles around talking about his character. I mean, there's somebody who's good to his parents and who makes his mother proud. He's a, a good person, but I guess maybe a little well, that's boring. What that's what we think. Yeah. But it's just but yeah, interesting it's, that he did that rather than said... He was such a good boy, and he made his mother happy. Like, oh, <laughs> nice Jewish mother. boy. 
Yeah, well, as we're going to see, those other three sort of fade into the background next to uh, Rabbi Elazar ben Arach and Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkonos. Um, their praise is certainly nice, but it's not noteworthy in the same way. So, um, he used to say, if all the sages of Israel were in one side of a balance and Eliezer ben Herkonos on the other scale, he would outweigh them all. Abba Shaul said in his name that if all the sages of Israel were on one scale of a balance and also Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkonos with them and Rabbi Eleazar ben Arach were on the other side of the scale, he would outweigh them all. Who's Abba Shaul? Abba Shaul comes a little bit later, and he's saying in the name of Yohanan ben Zakkai. So he's a little bit more recent, and he's saying, okay, so the first, the text first says that Yohanan ben Zakkai says that Eli, uh, ben Herkonos outweighs them all. Abba Shaul comes down later and says, no, 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 what, uh, what Yohanan ben Zakkai was really saying was that Eli, Elazar ben Arach outweighs them all. So he's almost coming and contradicting what this guy said in the first place after he is gone. Responses, yeah. So my thought on this is that this is sort of, uh, so we saw this in, in one of the earlier portions we worked on, is that um, it's showing already a, a tension between the thoughts of Eliezer ben Herkonos and the rest of the collected sages. Yes. I mean, the fact that you're, that you're making this comparison of him outweighing all of the other sages is showing that maybe, you know, the sages are set in one way of thinking and it's not necessarily right. Eliezer is more open to mm-hmm. that alternative thought style, but then to throw uh, Elazar ben and again at, at an opposition to this, saying that these if these two parties that are opposed are working together, then this third party is even hev- more heavily weighted. Mm-hmm. But, and this is a question I don't know about, in, wouldn't uh, ben be included in the sages to whom Eliezer ben Herkonos is opposed in the first example? So Bob, whichever one of them is opposed to the majority is the one who carries the most weight? Excellent question. Bob, you had an interesting comment on this yeah, section, too, it, if you want to share. It, defi- it defies the law of physics, because <laughs> you know, if you put Hikronos on one side and everybody on the other side, Hikronos outweighs it. But if you put Ben Arat on one side... And everybody else, including Ben Hirkonos, on the other <coughs> side, Ben Arak outweighs them. them. So you cannot, from a physics standpoint, balance the scales that way. Sounds yeah. like the Israeli <laughs> government. This <laughs> <laughs> politics. Which, which basically means they are arguing with each other. That's right. As to, as to which sage would be, in effect, the weightiest. I would suggest that Bob is correct, that what we are seeing here are not complementary readings, but are uh, competing ones. Well, or did you bounce off what you said about the translation on Elazar ben Arach. Mm-hmm. So the first one basically says the heaviest, the most significant, is it Kaveh that they use? Okay, let me look. Is Go ahead, while you're... Uh... So the, okay, so the heaviest and the most significant, right? Mm-hmm is the rabbi who is a cemented cistern that doesn't lose a drop. <laughs> so what is that? Things go in, mm-hmm. they stay in, nothing changes, and nothing leaves. And it just collects, collects, collects. Right. Okay? So that's one vision if you want a rabbinic perfection. 
coming off your translation, if I understood you properly, mm-hmm. uh, Elazar ben Arach, the spring flowing with ever-flowing strength, is something that is evolving, something that is growing. You said it was reflexive, something that's yes. moving. Yes. It's strength, but it's not static. That's right. And it becomes something over time. So those two things seem to me to kind of be opposites. I don't know if that's even a reasonable reading. Very it is. Thankful. So I, I was b- b- bouncing off mm-hmm. the English. It's not clear, but bouncing off of your your thing of the Hebrew. The Hebrew is not entirely clear oh. either. I'll give <laughs> as a hint, as it often is. It's part of what makes this text is, very dense and challenging. Is this an early Reconstructionist text. <laughs> Does it use the same word for weight? In all the places that we've used weight, like where it says outweigh them all, is that kabod in the last one? Is it the same word and the same root as? It doesn't explicitly use um, a weight word. It just says that they're more than the others. So it talks about them being in a scale, and it says the one side is more than the other. Well, but it also, all of the rabbis I've described, mm-hmm. with one exception, They're all described with one exception. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about Yohanan ben Zakkai or Abba Shaul? Well, no, there are five. Yeah. Yeah, we know that, that uh, 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 Eliezer is a cistern, Ben Hanemia is two. mother, Yossi, Shimon. How is Hirkonos described? Other than the weighting of the scale. So he is described here as... He's, he's Eliezer. Eliezer is Ben. Is Eliezer ben- is yes, he is the cistern he's the that doesn't lose the drop. Yeah. That's right. One, two, no, three. They're all described. So, so that's shortened it for that. Yeah. I should, sorry, I could have put that in, in brackets there. They did that in the text just short of shorthand in that place. Um, Jill had a, something she wanted to jump in and then Robert too. Okay. Robert. Uh, just sort of following up on the comment that Bert was making, it's interesting that the, uh, the two uh, rabbis of interest, mm-hmm. um, the descriptions both pertain to water. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and one in a not a very complimentary way, at least from a reconstructionist point of view, not a very complimentary, a closed water. And the other guy is just, you know, pure flowing Everlasting will definitely fill up a cistern and overflow it with water. Save that water comment. In the third story we look at, that's going to come back in a really pertinent way. Um, but you're right to seize on that. Uh, as we're going to see, it's interesting the relationship that Rabbi Elazar ben Arach has with water. Well, the other, the other comment I was about to make about water, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's relevant here, is that in that era, I mean, a couple of liquids were really very special, water and blood. And, you know, water was a big deal, not only because they were in a desert, but it was purification was one of the purifying agents. And I'll add one more liquid to your tally, oil. The word Mashiach, Messiah, literally just means anointed. And that's how one becomes Messiah, is one is anointed with oil. It's how they would anoint kings and the like. Uh, Oil was very much a currency at the time. So to have these containers of liquid in that way, it's instructive. 
Wine was too, actually. But we're, and we'll see that we'll see this whole liquid piece come back again. Um, Abraham, did you have a? Well, I was just thinking that that when you're saying that uh, the Torahs that they were or the, the sections that they were more than mm-hmm. the others, is it almost the force of their dissidence of their arguing with the rest of them is what gave them that authority and made them more? Ah. Is in that perhaps that you know uh, that that by stepping outside of the majority or the totality of the rest of the sages that you know they wouldn't have a reason to do this if there was not such a, a strength in their argument or their dissidence that it created this moreness that the rabbis have absolutely that great point uh that it's not just what it is they know or have but it's even the way in which they argue with one another yeah their interaction that makes them great yeah okay i'll just say it. jump in so we keep talking about him or him. Yes. Or could it just be a metaphor for what strength is? Like, not the person, mm-hmm. but their character. Like, a cemented cistern we were discussing could also collect knowledge. Mm-hmm. And knowledge is strength. Mm-hmm. Or however that strength is, it's collected, it's collected. Absolutely. You keep building and building and you don't lose anything. And as we talked about, how you said it was um, continually strengthening itself. Yeah. So like you can learn something, but you don't have to be so rigid that you can't evolve and learn more. Mm-hmm. As opposed to this rabbi or this rabbi it's the way you strengthen yourself. Very nice. Better. So I would say it's the okay. characteristics, not the human being. Yeah. Sure. No, yeah, it's, po- it's possible to see both of these contenders mm-hmm. as uh, very important mm-hmm. because the one who is cement and holds <laughs> things securely is like the historical. Um, truth mm-hmm. and the facts and uh, the exactness of remembering how everything happened. But the one who is the spring mm-hmm. is one who is developing ideas and so on. And both of these, you know, the facts, the history is important and also getting a, a creative take on things like the spring. That's important too. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think we have to choose. But as Absolutely. you said, they're, yeah. they're not necessarily contemporary. Right. So this is on a scale. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, just, Jory, um, yeah. just to add to the characteristics, um, I think there's also, you might say, a tortoise and a hare approach to it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and the cistern is maybe a, a little bit boring, but mm-hmm. very solid and, and strong and immovable in a certain kind of a way. And um, the thing about a spring is there's a real uh, aesthetic beauty about that. And there's maybe you could say it almost like a flashiness. Mm-hmm. And it also makes me think of solidity and versus agility. And mm-hmm. you need solidity to be agile. Mm-hmm. And is which grows out of which, you know? I think those are both. Both of those two comments, I think, are right on, and they're very perceptive. 
I will also say that the rabbis are not playing that game. They want to set these two characteristics up in competition with one another. Theirs seems to be the question of what is it, what do they value in their rabbinic enterprise? Is it this ability to contain, to transmit, to hold, back up to the very, very first sentence, received the tradition. You use the word, talk about facts and history and whatever. I might use the word tradition in that place. Uh, in what way do you receive and preserve the tradition as it's handed down from all of these rabbis who have been working on it? Or do you value generativity, that kind of creativity, a different uh, perspective and approach to the whole thing? So the rabbis, their big question is, which do they value more highly? And we don't get an answer here. We get two different perspectives. One says that the ability to capture and maintain and hold the tradition, every last drop of it, all of that knowledge, as you were saying, that that's what the most important thing is. And then we have the other rabbi saying, no, actually, the ever-flowing spring, the generativity, that that's what's the most important. There's no consensus here, though. Yeah, Bert. And, and that exists, that polarity and mm-hmm. discussion exists to this day. What I was going to say is, again, for some context, mm-hmm. the form of this, mm-hmm. saying this rabbi is this and this rabbi is this, is one that is repeated in this section of the Perkei Avot. This is mm-hmm. one of a whole bunch of different paragraphs that have this type of thing where there are there are questions. Rabbi this says that, Rabbi this says that, Rabbi this says that, and then this one says, but this is the Rabbi who is the most important. Yep. So this the form here is one that is common to this whole section of It is. I would also posit that it's interesting to wonder, is Pirkei Avot saying that Elazar ben Arach is the more weighty of the two, that the Ma'ayan Mitgaber, the ever-flowing spring, is what's to be uh, valued more highly because it's the last word? Or is it simply lining up two sides of the argument? The Mishnah doesn't specify. Yeah. So I have one, uh, should be a straightforward question, and possibly a follow-up. Um, when it says uh, Abashel said in his name, is that his referring to Yohanan ben Zakkai? Yes. Okay, so then the follow-up question is, where does he get off on saying that ben Zakkai misspoke the first time and what he really meant to say was this other thing? <laughs> A <laughs> great like question. Ben-Zakai was pretty clear in what he was saying. <laughs> You're absolutely right, and... They do this all the time. This is also another common piece where the rabbis will argue with each other, contradict one another, say, oh, but he actually said this other thing. No, that's not the case. Um, further c- complicating and compounding the mess is uh, the fact that, we've spoken about this before, there are two Talmuds. There is the Babylonian Talmud, and there is the Jerusalem Talmud. So this written work that was going on over all of these centuries was happening in two places, Babylonia, um, contemporary, actually modern-day Iraq, and in Yavna and uh, Jerusalem and other points in and around the land of Israel. And these scholars were going back and forth from one to the other, and they were arguing and debating with one another. But because this was an oral tradition they were having, and it was a little bit amorphous, and uh, they would disagree with each other, and they have different versions of it in both places, um, there is a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of vagueness and a lot of contradictory... Uh, yeah, it's messy. So that, that first line about um, Eliezer could have been secondhand. Someone said that this is what he said, and then so and then what uh, Abishol is saying is that nobody really said it was this. So he's not co- trying to contradict 
Ben Zakai is trying to contradict the reporting of what Ben Zakai had said? Or Either way. Is it, is it, or is that temporalness all of a sudden getting in the way again? And maybe, who knows, because these guys weren't alive at the same I would say take your pick of those, but what I would suggest is that um, Abba Shaul sees Ben Zakai, this earlier generation, as being authoritative in talking about this. So whether he disagrees with him and or he thinks that somebody else misreported it or whatever the reason, he's evoking the name of this sage to make his argument about okay. the, the spring versus the cistern. Um, do we have any others? I want to keep moving because we've got p- plenty of stuff to read. So, well, yeah, one more. Go ahead. This is the ego of two rabbis that is fighting each other. They use somebody else as their arms. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that we need the tradition and we need innovation. I would say you're absolutely correct. They're just not playing that game. <laughs> I think that what you, are, what you put forth is real wisdom about the nature of what it means to be in tradition and to also be in peoplehood and be part of the innovation of it. Well, I also want to let the rabbis have their floor. Let them have their fight over this. And they're, they're not going to play that game. I agree with you, but they're just not going there. They want to say that, no, we're having a... They would say, I imagine if they were sitting here, they'd say, no, we're having a debate about the nature of what we value in terms of knowledge and understanding and what is a true chacham, what is a true sage. Is it the container, the vessel, or is it the generator in that way? So there, the, I mean, this is what we got with Bob's piece about the physics of this becoming impossible, is that they're intentionally trying to set this up as a conflict. They don't want to have a nice synthesis of it, even though I think the truth is probably somewhere like what you're speaking. So I want us to move into part two now, the second story. Let me warn you right off the bat, this is weird. What you're going to see here is something called Ma'aseh Merkava. This is the very, very first, I would say, glimmers of Jewish mysticism. It is not a work that we have anymore, uh, that we have written down. We don't know about what it says or what it was, but we understand that it was some kind of treatise or oral tradition or written work or something that when one could properly expound on the Ma'aseh Merkava, the work of the chariot, um, Remarkable things would happen. So we're looking at almost proto-mysticism in this next story here. Before Kabbalah. Yes. Kabbalah, so this what we're looking at is, yeah, like the two, three hundreds or so. Kabbalah we get starting, yeah, well, so that's uh, the Arizal, um, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, who um, he sort of expanded upon the Kabbalistic system. But early spherotic Kabbalah comes about in the 1200s or so. Um, so yes, there is all kinds of literature about the chariot as a uh, as one particular vessel. There is also the um, hechalot literature, the literature of the palaces, and they would talk about these mystical journeys where they would ascend into these different layers of palaces. It was part of the mystical experience. Um, but the chariot is part of that same genre. You're right to point that out. Um, but it does predate Kabbalah by maybe even a thousand years. So. Think of this in terms of proto-mysticism. So the work of the chariot, again? Ma'ase Merkava. Right. Is this early... We don't know what it was. We haven't found a copy of it or anything, but we have it attested to in several places in Talmud. 
So, this is one of these attestations. Again, this is going to be bizarre. Read this as proto-mysticism. And go. <laughs> so, are we ready to come back into this piece, you think? We'll come back to it. It's a strange, strange piece. So, if it was confusing, um, have no fear. This is all part of the journey. I will uh, read, and again, jump in and stop me as uh, you will. Our rabbis taught, once Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was riding on a donkey when going on a journey, and Rabbi Elazar ben Arach was driving the donkey. Rabbi Elazar said to him, Master, teach me a chapter from the work of the chariot. He replied, Have I not taught you thus, not the work of the chariot, in the presence of one, unless he is a sage and understands his own knowledge? Rabbi Elazar replied to him, Well, Master, permit me to say something which you have taught me. Rabbi Yochanan said, replied, speak, and dismounted from his donkey, wrapped his robes, and sat down on a stone beneath the olive tree. Rabbi Elazar said to him, why did you get down from the donkey? He replied, is it proper that while you're expounding from the work of the chariot and the divine presence is with us and the ministering angels accompanying us, I should be riding on the donkey? Yes. But I thought he was going to be the one expounding on the work, not... Not the other guy. He asks him, so he says, Master, will you teach me a chapter of this? Right. And Yochanan says no. So then Elazar says, well, let me just say something to you. And then Yochanan seems, it seems like he says, okay, well, whatever's about to come out of his mouth is actually going to be this thing which I tried not to let him say. So, since it's, I'm going to guess it's going to be this work of the chariot, I'm going to go ahead and assume the position for the work of the chariot, to be on the ground, to be grounded, to be prepared for this transcendent experience. That seems to be what's going on here. But in the paragraph above, okay, they talk about ben Arach being the more weighty of it. So ben Arach was, was the student of Yohanan ben Zakkai. Yohanan ben Zakkai is the one who's describing all of them in the previous piece. He's the teacher. Yeah, so just to remember, so he's the one riding, and uh, his student, Yochanan ben Zakkai, is the master, and his student, Elazar, is coming beside him and says, look, will you teach me a chapter of the Maase Merkava, the work of the chariot? And he says, no, you're not supposed to do it in a company of just one unless you've, uh, you're a sage and you understand your own knowledge and all of this. And so then... I, yeah, I didn't read it as he didn't say no. He says no unless. Exactly. And so the student says, well, okay. Yep. I am. I'm up for that. What's interesting is he asked him to teach a chapter, but then but he then says, let me tell you something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's an interesting sort of interplay between the master and the student here. Other questions before we continue this? All right. Next page. Immediately, Rabbi Elazar ben Arach began his exposition of the work of the chariot. And fire came down from heaven and encompassed all the trees in the field, and they began to sing a divine song. Who is they? Probably the trees, although you could suggest it's something else. The pronouns in the story are vague. As we often get in Talmud, they play fast and loose with their pronouns, and so it, uh, it gives you the ability to try on different readings in that way. So you're asking a great question. I, yeah, I had said I didn't know what the work of the chariot was, and... I didn't understand that, and we had a kind of a consensus mm-hmm. amongst three of us. And then and I reread it and read it. And the work of a chariot and fire came down from heaven. And 
what I recall, which many of us have seen, we all saw a movie called Chariots of Fire, <laughs> which had nothing to do with chariots, mm-hmm. and it was running. running. Yeah. And yet, they derived that title from something, and all of a sudden, it's reading here chariots and fire, and there's some symbolism between this, and I, I never did understand why that title came up for the movie, because it had nothing to do with the, with the subject of the movie, but whoever wrote it must have had some knowledge. So I wanted to also, I think that's a great, very interesting thing to lift up. I had never thought of that before in the context of this. That's cool. Um, just a piece of Hebrew I wanted to toss into the mix there for what he does with this. I said he begins his exposition on it. It says in Hebrew, who patah, he opened the Ma'aseh Merkavah, and he drashed from it. If you've heard those two words before. So that's what's going on, is he has opened this thing and he is drushing from it, and then all of this stuff happens. Um, this question, what is the Ma'ase Merkavah, the work of the chariot? We don't know. We don't have that text. It's never been discovered. It's never been found. Um, it's an excellent question. It does pop up, though, in numerous places, and we have an understanding that it is connected to these divine and transcendent experiences, that when this happens, um, all kinds of supernatural, transcendent, uh, ecstatic sorts of things are about to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the work has, like, almost magical properties that you don't even right. see in Torah. I mean, they discuss Torah, which is the core element of, of the whole culture and the people and the law, and, you know, the... The closest they get to the relit to the the divine is when someone starts invoking mystical powers because they feel like they're losing an argument. Mm-hmm. Here, just t- speaking about the work of the chariot is causing all these divine things. So, in some effect, it's sort of separate, but it seems almost more powerful than than law than the Torah. But it's a side issue entirely that that may have this this more direct divine link. Sort of like I said, hold the water piece for the third story, hold that for the third story too. Okay. This tension between whatever is going on here, this work of the chariot, and uh, Rabbi Elazar ben Arach, and the way he expounds on it, and all of these supernatural things happening, the tension between that and law. There's a real tension going on, and that's going to sort of burst open in the third story. Yeah, Mickey. There are many uh, apocryphal writings that never got canonized. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was too complicated or too mystical for the time. That's an interesting story. Uh, question is, could it have been like one of these biblical texts, in fact, that did not wind up being canonized? Like um, the Wisdom of Ben Sirach, for instance, or the Book of Judith. There are a number of um, non-canonical sort of Israelite-era biblical-type texts that are not in anyone's Bible. Could it be one of those? It's entirely possible. Um, it could be something later, too. It could have come... I mentioned this time in which this era that produced all of this apocalyptic literature um, from all of the great political and social upheavals of the time and the Roman military really crushing everything in its path, uh, it produced all kinds of extreme theological responses and extreme literary responses. Could it be in that genre? It's possible. Yeah. 
<laughs> Please. Wait, Grant, did you have a, another piece on chariots of fire? <laughs> yes, it was Bring the Chariots of Fire under William Blake, a poem. Yeah, a poem. Uh, but, but the original phrase, chariots of fire, is it is from two kings, blah, 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 in the Bible. So. Oh, Second Kings, right. okay. Oh, Hang on, yeah, you had a comment as well, and then we'll come back around to this side. Dr. Google, um, so usually when fire comes down, mm-hmm. Isn't, I will say this is probably not meant to be read in a rational sort of sense. Uh, this is some kind of... Good, all the better. This is some kind of mystical, experiential, ecstatic vision that they're, that they're in the midst of together in this Maase Merkava. He had two points over here and then we'll come back to Abraham. Yeah. I remember the movie Yes. in which a Jewish runner is competing against all the other, I think it's Oxford or some English college, is competing, and no one thinks that he is going to win, and he runs like hell, and he wins, and that was because he was inspired to to do that because of who he was, so he was riding on a chariot of fire. Beautiful. That's a great drosh. Great midrash. I love it. Yeah. Well, um, a couple things. One, a chariot is a vehicle. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was really something, you know. I mean, it was like a race car or like a spaceship, maybe. Okay. <laughs> For that time. Um, I, um, I worked with um, a teacher um, who did some kind of Kabbalistic stuff and... So he talked a little bit about this, and his idea was that you're writing something and in your imagination, and maybe you're developing some kind of um, visualization, some kind of meditative technique, and um, that riding a vehicle of some kind is a way to transport yourself to another um, state of consciousness or something. Absolutely. That, um a lot of people who unpack this look at this as this is supposed to be a vehicle to uh, transcend, to take you to a different kind of plane or a different kind of existence or a different relationship with the divine into a different place with that. Um, so you're right to emphasize the vehicular aspect of it. Um, yeah. So uh, two things. One was the, the, the trees being on fire. What that instantly reminded me of was the burning bush, mm. which is, you know, I mean, it's because it doesn't say that the... That the trees burned at all. It says they were encompassed by the fire and they sang. Sort of like the bush was encompassed by this fire, didn't burn, but it was instead granted a voice. Yeah. The voice of the vine. And the other thing on the, on the chariots of fire is that that was just in that time period, almost every culture in that region used that example uh, when they were discussing the sun. 
the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, I mean, almost all of the major religions had the chariot of fire that represented uh, life and time passing and wisdom. I mean, the sun gods were usually tied in with gods of knowledge or gods of life. Mm -hmm. Um, So then the idea of this chariot of fire, this work of the fire being this vehicle of the divine, you know, I mean, you could imagine, you know, God traveling from location to location, assuming that God even needs to travel, but maybe an angel needs to travel. Physically in this chariot of fire, this, these pillars of flame coming down to the earth to engulf the trees, and then there's the angels that are answering from the fire and singing from the trees or, or what have you. And this chariot of fire is the vehicle they use to cross the sky. So I'll say one other thing about chariot. Uh... My teacher, Dr. Elsie Stern, the biblicist who teaches at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, she teaches that the chariot was actually the most significant innovation in military technology for about a thousand years. Um, the chariot was effectively a super weapon for a long time in the ancient world. Uh, so that as symbol of power is, uh, we should not underestimate that in the ancient imagination. Yeah, Bert. And chariots play a very important part in the Exodus. Yes. Because at the Red Sea, it was the chariots of uh, Pharaoh from which the Israelites were saved. That's right. They were the 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 weapons. The Pharaoh's great, glorious weapons wind up going to the deep. That's right. Yeah. Uh, what about the Ezekiel story? Does it connect at all with um, <laughs> you know? I don't know it that well, but I mean. Vision in the sky is that is that a chariot or is that something else? I'm going to sidestep that question <laughs> because the Ezekiel narrative is one of the more f- I, no I'll go I'll stand by is the most far out thing in Hebrew Bible um, and sort of unpacking what it means and what it's about and the visions and the mystical pieces the flying winged uh, creatures that come and go in the eye of Hashmal and all of this. Um, I'll put it like this. It's a great question to ask, and I think that would be quite the road to go down right now. (laughs) But you're thinking in the right direction. I'll put it like that. Other questions about this second feed? Yeah. Where do the sea monsters come from? (laughs) So the sea monster, so this is a line, thank you, Bert. This is a line from Psalms. uh, And oftentimes sea monsters and the deep are evoked uh, to talk about some of the great Things you hear about Leviathan. Leviathan was originally one of these two. Leviathan. Um, that these were sort of the greatest creatures that live on the planet. So it's this idea of um, being of God being transcendent above and beyond even the greatest creatures that they could imagine. Um, also, isn't this a? I think it's called a merism, where to make a point, mm-hmm. they have the from the smallest to the biggest. Meaning everything. Yeah. It's like night and day when, when you're at home and when you're out on the road. And it also goes from, you know, fruitful... The depths tr- and the heavens. Yep. The depths with the sea monsters is sort of an extreme right, circumstance that one probably wouldn't encounter ever in one's life in ancient Israel. Whereas one probably, it would. I would be surprised if one did not encounter a tree with fruit on it um, in, in ancient Israelite uh, life in that way. So taking something that's very everyday and mundane and contrasting it with something that's really extreme in that way. I think you're right to hold that up. And you put the ellipses in the 
translation. Yes. You didn't leave any words out. No. And there's the rest of this piece of the psalm. There's oh, there's there's more there. of a psalm, right, right, but the but Talmud, Talmud. That's correct. The Talmud only brings that piece. Questions, other thoughts. The, but the sea monsters could have been. I mean, being very literal. Sure. You know, ancient, prehistoric, those great things that we've seen. You know. That sure. Could be a sea monster. I I mean. And inspire awe and fear. You know, I also wonder if they ever found, you know, dinosaur skeletons when they're thinking about behemoth, the behemoth, that particular ancient thing, you know, if that, how was the ancient imagination informed by some of these creatures and skeletons and things? It's a fascinating uh, question. Yeah. Whale skeletons. It's hard to imagine if you see a whale skeleton washed up on a shore to reconcile what that skeleton looks like with what whales look like in the water. Totally. I mean, they look like giant dragons and beasts that would roam the earth because you can see the, the fingers and the toes on their skeleton that you and they it's, I could definitely see you finding one of those being uh, very odd if you didn't know what it was absolutely so here we have to sort of bring this story back together this one so we have the master and the student Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Elazar ben Arach and Rabbi Elazar ben Arach is somehow able to uh, open and drosh this Maase Merkava, the work of the chariot, and affect this incredible, ecstatic, mystical experience. Again, this is the character who we see as the Ma'ayan Mitgaber. This is the ever-flowing spring. This is the source of generativity. That's the character that does the work of the chariot, that affects the Maase Merkava. So again, now we're... We're sort of honing in on what this Ma'ayan uh, Mitgaber, what this ever-flowing spring is capable of. This is a character who is capable of going to fairly um, remarkable places in terms of his relationship with God and the divine and his status as a rabbi. So, one last story. This one is confusing. What's that? Oh, thank you. An angel then answered from the fire and said, This is the very work of the chariot. Thereupon, Rabbi Yochanan rose and kissed him on the head and said, So again, the, the pronouns are vague. I would suggest that the master kissed the student on the head. That's what I think from context, but the pronouns are such that you can't answer definitively. Kissed him on the head and said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has given a son to Abraham our father, who knows how to speculate, investigate, and expound the work of the chariot. There are some who preach but don't act well, others who act well but do not preach well, but you preach and act well. Happy are you, Abraham Avinu, that Rabbi Elazar ben Arach is your descendant. So he ties this experience up neatly by rewarding him, by praising him, by saying, You are this wonderful descendant of Abraham. The, and thinking back to Abraham, Abraham being the very first uh, of our people to have a relationship with God. Abraham is the one who starts the covenant with God. The covenant begins with Abraham. Uh, and so he's, Rabbi Yochanan is connecting Rabbi Elazar ben Arach with that foundational moment. Yeah. Well, I just think that this section is, is interesting because it, it shows that we've already expounded on Arach's strength and knowledge, but this shows a wisdom, a temperance of that He's not just creating more and more and more. He understands what he's creating and what has come before him. Because earlier, uh, Zakai says that you, to recite the works of the work of the chariots, 
You have to understand your own knowledge. Mm-hmm. And this, in, in, because of how successful uh, Elazar von Arak is, it shows that he has a strong understanding of his own knowledge, mm-hmm. which is amazing that he understands both what he doesn't know and what he knows and is constantly still creating more and to even expand upon, expound upon the works of the chariot and create more than there was previously while still understanding his own limitations, which seem almost endless at this point. Keep that, again, this is a great piece to keep in mind for this third story. Sort of who he is, where he is, what he's capable of, um, and his self-understanding. Um, and keeping in mind who is telling the story here is also very important, too. Other thoughts about yeah, this? What, what is the Hebrew that you translate as preach? That's a very... Preach to me is always a little bit Christian kind of a word. Um, so I'm wondering what... Who act well but do not preach well? Yeah. Doresh. Doresh. Okay, Doresh. Okay, it's like drosh. Yeah. It's expound. We can train. It's kind of teach slash expound. Yeah. So the idea here is here, here's someone who who isn't just about the words, but who can explain the words and also acts well. And who lives it. That's and right. Who lives it. Yes, it's a. There are those three components. That's great. I appreciate you bringing that up. So who knows the words? Who is able to drosh on those words and expand that into something, and is able to live and act on it. And bring that into reality in a way. So these are these seem to be the essence of what Elazar ben Arach brings and what Rabbi Yochanan values so highly in him. And the acting seems pretty much the most important. That seems to come out of nowhere here, though. <laughs> <laughs> Say more. All, all, all of a sudden, there's this whole other thing about the combina- about the relationship between. Learning and expounding, and mm-hmm. also how you act and what you do in life, which yes. doesn't seem to be anywhere else in the story. Something about this hem- having uh, opened and drashed the Maase Merkava, the work of the chariot, has led Rabbi Yochanan to the conclusion that the way in which he lives, not only does he teach well, not only is he a master of the material and teaches on it and exp- expounds on it brilliantly, but he lives it. There is something. I want to return to this, that it is experiential. There is, this is meant to be understood as a very real thing in that way. So there's something in this that I, I think that Rabbi Yochanan understands that this is partly acting it. That this Maase Merkava is not just teaching, it's not just words, and it's not just action. It's something that's in between. So you're right to point that out. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. And, I mean, this goes back to the beginning of the story, and it's probably not important, but... It's like when you're a TA. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, Rev. Elazar seems like the kind of guy that says, teacher, let me ask a question, and then expounds his own ideas for the next half hour. Where is the question? He didn't ask him a question. He says, let me ask you a question. Teach me a chapter from the work of the chariot. And then what he does is expounds on the work of the chariot himself. So he isn't asking to be taught. He's asking for the other guy just to listen to him expand. I think he wants more knowledge. Well, you, yeah, except he doesn't leave that open. He doesn't listen. Well, because he, he was sort of chastised by his master, maybe. The master also, says he won't teach, that you can only teach it to someone who knows. And so I think what Rabbi Elazar is saying 
well, can I speak to you now and show you that I know? He may have interpreted... And he permission. That's entirely uh, possible to read it that way. Either this is some arrogant little thing he's doing, this stunt, or he sees when Rabbi Yochanan says... He says, will you teach me something out of it? He says, oh, only if you're in the right place. You could read that as saying, are you in the right place? You show me. You tell me. Prove it to me. And so then he turns around and does this. And the fact that um, when he says, you know, only in the right circumstances and then gets off of his donkey, that may be an implicitly saying to Elazar that I know what's coming. I know what you're about to do. And I'm going to get in the right position in the right state for this experience, which is about to happen. Do your stuff. Open fire. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. They, they, there seems to be this knowledge between the two. They know what's happening. So that question at the beginning, will you teach me a piece of it? Is that a question to actually learn it? Or is that a question of, am I ready to do this? You can unpack that question in multiple ways. Other thoughts? All right. So we have now one... Last story. This is going to be a little bit convoluted. Surprise, surprise. Um, but again, keep in mind, A, the piece about the water and the pieces you were talking about, about the tension between law and this stuff that Elazar ben Arach does and who he is. The tensions between the, cement, the cistern and the ma'ayan, the spring, the generativity. So, part three, the stunning conclusion. All right, so let's bring it back together. Part three, the stunning conclusion. Rabbi Chilbo said, The wine of Prugaita and the water of Diomest cut off the ten tribes from Israel. This is the ten lost tribes that no longer exist at this point. Rabbi Elazar ben Arach visited that place. He was drawn to them, place? the place where this water and wine exist. Because again, the tribes no longer exist in their understanding. The tribes are gone now. And now this Rabbi Chelbo is saying that the, this wine and this water were what cut off those ten lost tribes. Rabbi Elazar ben Arach visited that place. Yeah. Sorry. No, no worries. Those ten lost tribes, are they different from the Levites and the Kohanes and all the other? So there is a whole... Twelve. Yeah. Right. They were ten of the original twelve. Well, they're the presumably they're the ten that are on in Israel, not on the other side of the Jordan. So these are the ten that are lost to the sands of time. There are theories that maybe Jews in India or certain Jews in Africa, Jewish communities, may have originally been one of these lost tribes, but they somewhere in the ancient world disappeared from what was uh, mainstream Israelite identity. So these are not ten of the twelve. Then they were before they were gone. They originated as 10 of the 12. Okay. So, yes. Oh, you're just scratching. All right. Yeah, I don't know what <laughs> well, again, were they the 10 that went into Israel? So this was post um, them arriving in Israel and establishing the monarchies and such. So something happened back then. We can unpack the lost tribes at some point, but this is a... The point that the story is bringing with those tribes is to say that, you know, this is a piece of our narrative and our heritage that has actually been erased from our memories and our identities and our life. We don't know what happened. That's a mystery that's gone now. And Rabbi Elazar ben Arach went there. He went, Rabbi Chelbo here is saying that the means by which these tribes cease to exist are this special water and this special wine. And 
Rabbi Elazar ben Arach went to go check out the water and the wine. He was drawn to them, and in consequence, his learning was uprooted. When he returned home, he arose to read Torah. He was the getting up for an aliyah. Um, back then, an aliyah would not have been separate from just saying the blessings and then somebody else reads it for you. You probably would get up and read that section of the text. He was supposed to read, Ha-chodesh hazel lachem, but instead he read, Ha-cheresh haya libam. I put them up there so you can see them next to one another. They're pretty close. Each word has one letter that's wrong. And they're not, and they're shaped such that it's believable. Maybe. But the scholars prayed for mercy for him and his learning returned. Thus we learned, Rabbi Nehorai said, be exiled to a place of Torah and do not say it will follow you, for your companions will establish it in your possession and do not rely solely on your own understanding. Etana, one of these early sages, taught, his name was not Nehorai, but Nehemiah, while others state his name was Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. Why was he called a Nehorai? Because he enlightened, Manhir, the eyes of the sages in Halakha. Something happened to Rabbi Elazar ben Arach when he went chasing after this wine of Prugaita and the water of Diomest. He went after some kind of mystical thing that causes ruptures within Jewish continuity, and he lost his learning. Something happened to him. He got up. Was that? That was what Abraham was suggesting as well. That you know, do you want to share that reading? What I was saying about the water of Diomest is that uh, it distilled liquor when you distill the alcohol is a very clear water-like substance. And back in the early days of distillation, it was a very poorly done process that left in tons of toxins and would often involve. Uh, they would boil in the what they were cooking. They would use wood, which would produce wood grain alcohols, which kill you if consumed too much. I mean, it's not a safe alcohol to drink. It damages the brain. It can damage vision. The idea of people going blind when they get drunk was because of um, wood alcohol that destroys the major parts of the central nervous system that the body can't process out the toxins. So there could be a... This water could have been uh, heavily distilled liquor that was really impure. And, and I mean, the... Stuff, you know, hangover for days. They might even make it a rock. It's a good one. So this question about these verses here is an interesting one because on one hand, they're pretty close. So maybe if you were going blind, you could miss it. But on the other hand, it is sort of a beginner's mistake. Anybody who would be fluent in Torah, this guy, again, this is the guy who recited and then expounded on the Maaseh Merkava. He is not illiterate. So for him to miss this is very interesting. Now let me tell you about these two phrases. Chodesh hazet lachem. This is the first mitzvah in the Torah. This is about calendaring and establishing a calendar and setting up law and rule and timing and categories of things. This is the very first formal mitzvah that we get. Chodesh haya libam. doesn't totally grammatically make sense in Hebrew. Something like their hearts are deaf. The deaf... Um, were their hearts, or something like that. Um, I have a teacher, um, Rachel Berkowitz from Pardes, who looks at that as actually a rhetorical question. That's not a statement. He's actually reprimanding the rabbis in reading Torah. 
He's talking about the entire legal process, and he's subverting it by saying, you guys are actually deaf to the real world around you. You all don't get what's going on. That reading of this is that what we're hearing here, this piece of the story, this is the rabbis trying to deal with this figure who has gone a little bit too far or transcended a little bit too much uh, their legal, their legalistic frameworks. They're trying to figure out how to rehabilitate him. And he may actually, in this text, be reprimanding them in the midst of it. This may actually be an attack, this typo that he has here. Uh, that may not be a mistake. It could be a mistake. Perhaps he was blind from this alcohol. It's a, I, that's a great reading. Um, it could be him attacking their legal system, saying, you all are too stuck in your own system. All of this, all of your ways, all of this traditional stuff. This could be him turning around and attacking the cemented cistern model of what knowledge is. That he's saying, actually, the substance of reality and the substance of God is something bigger than that. It's something more profound than that. And I want to get to what that is. He's this character who, we look at water as generativity. He is the source of water. He goes out in search of water. Um, It's interesting that he is both the source of it and he is also in search of it. And what seems to bring him off the reservation and uproot his learning is him going after water. Is him following that, looking for this strange, faraway water. But this is sort of who he is. He is the kind of character that wants to go unearth these mysteries and these realms of the universe. But yeah. That can also lead to madness. That, that it can. That it can. The rabbis, rightly or wrongly, they look at him as somehow, he's lost it. He has lost his learning. Somewhere along the way here, he lost the tradition. He lost his learning. He lost his roots. They use the word uprooted. I don't think that's an accident. Um, that something has been uprooted within him. Um, Disoriented. Yeah. He is, he seems to be in their esteem. Yeah. Well, there's the term the tree of life. So, I mean, if he's being uprooted from Torah, that means he's also being removed from, from life, from existence, in the way that the lost tribes were cut off from Israel. Right. This could be actually not just a uh, spiritual thing, but this could actually, they see this as an incredibly dangerous, life-threatening condition to be uprooted in that way from one's place in life, from one's community, one's Torah, all of that. That is to destroy life as far as they can tell. So what happens to him? Well, he gets rehabilitated in this very interesting way. It kind of has, uh, to me... In my movie version of it, we talked about having a movie version of it, like imagining in your head, what does your reading look like? What do these characters look like and sound like? This has uh, glimmers of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest to me. (laughs) He gets, they pray for mercy for him, and his learning returns, but suddenly he has a different name. And his name, uh, he says, don't say, be exiled to a place of Torah and don't say it will follow you. He's saying, you know what? You go too far and the Torah may not come with you. Um... Your companions will establish it in your possession. Ah, but all of my good uh, rabbis all around me who are so good in law and are such good cisterns uh, keep me grounded and keep me cemented and such. Um, And do not rely on your own understanding. I relied on my own understanding and it was bad. It's almost like a lobotomized version of the Elazar ben Arach that we had in the previous pieces. They even rename him to the point that, oh, why do we call him that? Well, because he illuminates so much halakha. He's become the legal master now. He doesn't do this stuff with the ma'aseh merkava. He's not dwelling in the realm of uh, mysticism anymore and these visions and these experiences. He's become the uh, legal decider in that way. 
I, I read that in the exact reverse. Please, share. <laughs> well, that, that, yes, it is, part of what he was saying is don't go off by yourself mm-hmm. because, and, and don't say that the Torah will follow you, but go to a place where there are people with whom you can discuss Torah. Mm-hmm. To me, this is him saying Torah is a community event and that the interchange with other scholars is what's really important. Mm -hmm. And it's a warning against, not against individual thinking, Mm -hmm. but against somebody thinking they can go to the top of the mountain with a scroll, and that's where they'll find enlightenment. Yes. But but where they will find enlightenment, to me this is saying, is in a room like this, where we are doing Torah together, where people are talking together in between them, as opposed to just individually. So does that? But I'm, I'm giving it a 21st century liberal twist to it. I think that's a great reading. Um, the question I would ask is: Does that sound like Rabbi Nehorai, or does that sound like Elazar Ben Arach? Well, you see, Nehorai is. It says because he enlightened the eyes of the sages in halacha, because he was an enlightener. Yes. He had learned the lesson. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not that he was enlightened in halakha. But he... Ah, he I see what you're saying. At least if I'm reading this properly, he enlightened the eyes of the sages. His process his enlightened pro- because he had the his, eyes. His process was, And then you get back to why traditionally Talmud and Torah is always studied in pairs. That's a cool reading. You never... Do, but it's a cool reading. That is a cool reading. <laughs> yeah. Maybe hopeful. <laughs> When, Wishful thinking. <laughs> when I first read this, I had the exact same thoughts that Bert had. I mean, I was like exactly what my thoughts had been. But then when I listened to what you were saying, I, I sort of had a more pessimistic view of his his statements of be exiled to a place of Torah and do not say we'll follow you for hands will establish your presence. So my thought then was, what if what he's saying is that you know when you go out to this place and you just assume the Torah will follow you, and everybody says, oh well, that guy over there knows what it said. And eventually you reach this place and everyone realizes that they were relying on other people and not themselves and that now nobody knows the entirety because everyone assumes somebody else had it. Mm-hmm. It's like if you're going hiking for uh, even three, four days. You know, you don't just assume that somebody else has the tent because you brought the food. You don't assume somebody else has the water filter because you brought the pump. You have to make sure that everyone has what they're supposed to have. You have to rely on yourself to check and usually everyone brings anything, you know, you bring everything you need and you have redundancy. But if you don't take that step, if, you, if everyone else just says, oh, he's carrying it, mm-hmm. you know, you end up uh, halfway up the mountain, you realize that you left the marshmallows in the car because everybody else thought the other person had them for the s'mores. <laughs> you know, except in this case, it's Torah. I mean, if you leave out the marshmallows of Torah, you're not just going to end up with a bad sandwich, you're going to end up with nothing. <laughs> It's also interesting, the word exiled here, in the <coughs> Babylonian Talmud, which was written in exile. Can, yep. can you talk a little about, it says, be exiled to a place of Torah. Place is an interesting exactly. idea here, because is the place is a home? spiritual, well here, let me, I'll give you the exact Hebrew for it. Um, Because these people who are writing this mm-hmm. obviously had been exiled. That's right. So that was part of their experience in that way. Um, 
So what it says is not makom, but it's uh, rachame, like um, it's this distance word that they're using here. It's about the. It's more of a, a measurement than it is a specific place. It's talking about gone too too far, essentially. It's that kind of comparative, qualitative um, idea of place rather than locale of place or makom, this great, beautiful right. Hebrew word for place, which is also a name of God. So he has gone far, is what is how I might translate that colloquially. Because at the beginning, basically, he went really far mm-hmm. to this far, far off place, mm-hmm. but it was the wrong place mm-hmm. because it uprooted all his learning. So That's right. Kind of like the opposite. So what's interesting here, and this is where I think that the perspective and the narration is interesting, is uh, this to me, at least in this reading, if you're looking at him having been sort of rehabilitated in this way by the rabbis, um, that then this new Nehorai character then recites back to them their truths that they want to teach with this piece. Um, Another piece that's interesting, and I want to contrast this, he doesn't get excommunicated. His learning gets uprooted, but he doesn't get cut out. We don't see what happened to Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkonos. You remember that whole story when he gets thrown? That doesn't happen to him here. There is another character, which we may learn at some point, named Alicia ben Abuya, who is also called the Acher, which means the other. He, um, He does get excommunicated, and he gets cursed and damned and... Wow, they really do everything they can to cut him out of what it means to be part of them, of their body, of their endeavor. They don't do this to him. They don't do this to Elazar ben Arach. What he's doing is weird and far out, but they have, but they found a way to rehabilitate they him, to make for him and bring him back. They, that's right. They pray for mercy for him. They pray for mercy for him. They petition for him. They um, pray on his behalf, and they somehow bring him back to where they are. Yeah. He, he responds. To their pleas mm-hmm. to not go off, to come back. Mm-hmm. He's, he's cooperating with them. Um, they say, do not rely solely on your own understanding. Mm-hmm. And he listens. He's actually, he so one of the readings of this is that he's the one actually saying that. Because down at the bottom we see that this Rabbi Nehorai says that, and well, one of the Tanas says that actually another name for Nehorai is Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. That they've renamed him, and he is now the voice of the body that had this tension with him. He is, um, if you were going to take a darker look at it, you could say he is parroting their party line, essentially, after this rehabilitation, whatever this was that happened. Yeah. Seems interesting to me because they go out of their way to try to bring him back into the fold. Mm-hmm. But with Eliezer, I mean, their first response when he disagrees with them about one thing is to excommunicate him. Was, was maybe Eliezer seen as more of a threat, and uh, 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 Elazar Ben Arak was seen as because he was seen as maybe more of like a, a paragon of knowledge that they. They felt that he was more necessary to continue the tradition as opposed to Eliezer, who was too much of a threat with his pseudo-mystical powers of calling God into arguments and so, trees uprooting and rivers mm-hmm. flowing backwards. I mean, we don't see in, in these three things, mm-hmm. anyways, any example of Eliezer uh, doing things of this of that level of mysticism. That's right. I think so. These two characters wind up setting themselves apart. 
Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkonos, what he does is threaten the whole system. He threatens the rabbinic enterprise in with what he does. They have this whole system of arguing and their halachot and their back and forth and working with one another, and then they have some kind of a quasi-democratic process by which they decide, okay, here's going to be the halacha, and he's willing to throw that out the window. He is willing to challenge the very system. They're threatened by him. Elazar ben Arach, he's kind of a strange one. Because as Bert was sort of alluding to, Judaism is not a monastic tradition. We don't view the highest heights of Torah learning as something that one does in solitude, in silence on a mountaintop. It's something that one does in these loud, noisy batei midrash, these study halls with everybody arguing and yelling and disagreeing about it. We see that as the paragon of where uh, enlightenment and knowledge and learning comes about. So what he's doing is not in their model, but it doesn't quite threaten their model in the same way. Um, where one could perceive a threat is in this whole Maase Merkava business. Uh, Rabbi Yochanan alludes to that. He says that it can be, you can't do this under just any circumstances. You can only uh, go and open and recite this thing uh, if you have the right kind of learning, and you should only do it in certain company. To do it with just one person present is a dangerous thing, it seems like. So, what he's doing is pretty tense there too, but again, it's not quite threatening the entire enterprise in the same way that Revi um, Eliezer ben Herkonos does in that story. So the way in which they respond to it and they respond to him is a little bit different. They sort of see him as this figure that, they see him as brilliant, first of all. They talk about him as being the Mayan Mitgaber. He is this ever-flowing spring. They see him as this master of a teacher, as somebody who can explain and unpack these things, and somebody who lives it. But he goes a little bit too far. He is a little bit too far outside of his community, outside of the project, outside of his peers, outside of what's going on. Um, but they also don't cut him out for it. They have to... They wind up reworking what he means in this, and or you could argue that he had a change of heart. He went. You could make the reading that he went all the way to the mountaintop. He went to the farthest extreme, and he decided that the way in which he'd been doing this was wrong. That he couldn't go anymore. He there was not another work of the chariot to expound. There was not more water in this ever flowing spring. He found out his own limits, and he came back and joined the legal enterprise. Or you could say that they, in some way, uh, rehabilitated him into this figure that fit more nicely and neatly with their piece. Or even, I liked this piece, that it wasn't that he then came back and was this great teacher of law, but them watching what he did, hindrance them, okay, maybe it's better to be a, a lawyer than it is to be the mystic, you know? Maybe that's a dangerous thing um, to learn from that process. So there are a lot of different ways of reading him, but he's a complex figure. He, he sort of challenges the rabbinic paradigm, but he doesn't uh, threaten it in the same way. He sort of pushes the dimensions and brings the rabbis to a place of examining what their enterprise is. How is it that he is different? Um, the fact that he is pushing these boundaries brings the rabbis to a place of defining their own boundaries, defining what their project is, what it is that they're doing. Yeah, Jill. He seems really well-liked. Yeah. teacher for, you know, to teach him, and then the teacher doesn't teach him, but then he gives him the floor. Like, mm-hmm. He's given some latitude. Yeah, mm. he is. He seems to, from Yochanan ben Zakkai, and then um, all of the scholars praying for mercy for him and all of that, yeah. he's not, yeah, he's not disdained. I, I wonder 
first sort of bought the story that, oh, he was chasing the, the gay man and they got the best of him, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But is there a possibility that, that uh, remember, he's going to this place uh, from which something terrible apparently happened? something went wrong with the 10 drives. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, and then he realizes uh, his brain's all fried and he's either purposefully or otherwise he's reading things wrong. Does he, are these two connected? Is, I mean, did he realize, was there something about the fact that uh, uh, this uh, visiting the place where the water and the wine and something went wrong with Israel mm -hmm. really struck him and he actually changed rather than be, was changed by the other rabbis. That's a good question too. What did the relate, what is the relationship between him going to that place and what happens to him internally there? Is he changed from without or from within? And then he goes back and he seems to be changed again. He goes, undergoes another transformation within the rabbis. They pray for mercy and then he is transformed again. So we get we sort of see him as the Ma'ayan Mitgaber, the ever-flowing spring, and then we see him affecting the Ma'ase Merkava, the work of the chariots, and then in this last piece we get lots of transformations. He does not leave this set of sagas, this set of stories, the same that he entered. It's, uh, it's interesting to consider, A, the different points of transformation, and B, was he transforming from within or from without? Were the transformations being visited upon him, or were they revelations that he came to of his own personal volition? That's a good question. Yeah. So I, uh, question that just I just thought about with the the fact that he's being renamed mm -hmm. is in the Torah. There's a few points where people are renamed. It's always incredibly significant. I mean, Avram to Abraham and mm -hmm. uh, Jacob to Israel. I mean, these are like not this renaming is not a process that's undertaken lightly. But is it something that's common elsewhere, or, or is it really just tied in this concept of being renamed with these major transformations of incredibly important figures? I don't know if anyone's heard this tradition, but there is a tradition that goes way back, and I think... Oh, I'm trying to think of how far back it goes. It may go back this far, but there is a tradition that when one is deathly ill or sick or there's something really wrong with somebody, that you would change their name. So that the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, the evil eye, might be deceived and not catch that, oh, this is the same person. That's a really ancient tradition that goes back to the early Jewish relationship with demons. Yeah. When my mother was really young, she was very sick. I forget what it was. It was rheumatic fever or whatever mm -hmm. it was. They gave her a middle name um, because of that. It's a very, it's a pretty ancient tradition actually, and it's something that even persists to this day. The reason I brought Elazar ben Arach is, I think he's a great guy. He's a fascinating character, this sort of mystical seeker in this way. But I find that through him, we learn about him and we hear his story, but I find in some ways we learn more about the rabbis and the rabbinic project, what the Talmud is about, what are their borders, what are their boundaries, what are their values. Uh, we get to see all of that writ large in the story of Elazar ben Arach in a way that's really remarkable, that his quests and seeking and visions and all of the way in which he is different from them uh, brings them to a place of talking about their own values. What is it that they're trying to do and how does it differ from his vision? And at the same time, we talked about these two competing visions earlier of the cistern versus the, the, uh, the spring. And I said, well, we're not 
going there. We're go- I'm not letting you line them both up and have them together. The rabbis want to set them to con- be conf- confrontational. Well, in the end, they do synthesize them. They don't throw him out in the end. They keep him. He's one of theirs, and he remains with them, and they continue learning with him. Um, yeah. Well, it seems, one thing that seems to come through is that um, that Halakha and Torah must be community mm-hmm. projects. That's right. That, that, and maybe that was um, one of the big differences between Reb Eliezer and Reb Elazar was his willingness to be part of the... He wanted... When he came back, he wanted to be part... He said that not only did he want to be part of the community, he said that without the community, there is a Torah. That's right. Here's a commonality between uh, Reb Eliezer ben Herkonos and Reb Elazar ben Arach. They both set themselves apart from the community, and some kind of reckoning has to happen. What that reckoning is is very different. But the way in which they they separated themselves from the community and the actions they took, those are also very different, and they have different repercussions. Yeah. I mean, Eliezer seemed to be a very arrogant individual. <laughs> I mean, when he when his argument isn't going his way, he invokes divine powers versus Eleazar, who seems to be much more... I mean, he's, he's very self-confident, mm-hmm. but he's humble about his self-confidence. He, he believes himself to be worthy of discussing the, the, the work of the chariot in the presence of, a, of an individual... But he's not going to just start doing that. He's going to ask permission first. He's going mm-hmm. to show his humility and his willingness to serve the community and the established order as opposed to just saying, you know, to heck with it, I'm right. So their affect in relation to the rest of the community is really important too. Again, honing in on who is the community, what are their values, and how do these figures situate themselves relative to the community, and how does the community interact with them then? These are all these are the questions to be asked about this. And so... Again, I think that Rabbi Elazar ben Arach brings us into a very, a really contemplative and interesting place in terms of understanding and unpacking the narratives, the imaginations, and the perspectives of our ancient rabbis and sages of the Talmud. Uh, thank you all for coming tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.